Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordinance.com. And now, here's your host. John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. I'm your host, John Johnston. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos, other things at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. Because we are in the most highest tech of facilities right now, that is totally experiencing technical issues. I'm not going to say hello to Joe this episode. He is waving at me from the booth, though. He's very happy to be here, very excited, and I'm sure would uh, say something incredibly insightful and set me up perfectly for introducing the guest, Chris Seibert. Chris, how's it going, man? It's going well, John. How are you? Oh, I I cannot complain. And I say that every episode. I guess I could complain. And uh, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep perspective though. So like we're we're having comms issues right now inside of the mm-hmm. the booth here. And okay, it's annoying. But it's not like in your past career where if you had comms issues, probably neither one of us are going to die. So it's 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 lessening my frustration and annoyance. By just keeping some perspective. Um, but uh, for for those that don't know or didn't li- listen to last week, who are you? What do you do? Uh, what did you do? And we'll we'll hop right in. Uh, sure thing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Chris Seifert. I'm an instructor at Citizen Defense Research with you and Melanie. Uh, prior to that, I spent, uh, I spent 20 years in the United States Army. I joined the Army year before 9-11, which is a good or bad time to join, depending on, you know, what you're into. And I spent most of that career as a Green Beret, a Special Forces Medical Sergeant, the Special Forces Group, uh, where I had the privilege of deploying to, you know, Afghanistan a couple of times, Iraq a bunch, a bunch of times, Syria, various other random places in the world, and uh, was able to learn a lot of lessons that, that I was able to take those principles and distill them down into my own life as a private armed citizen now that I'm retired. Uh, and I also spent my last uh, last three plus years as an instructor of advanced skills at our special warfare center, uh, which was a great privilege, and really enjoyed that. And and so now I teach uh, teach armed citizens, law enforcement, and you know some military guys on occasion. Uh, you know, based on my my two decades of uh, experience in you know, dangerous situations. Awesome. So last week we were talking about planning and preparation and mental agility and things like that. And the conversation sort of, well, there were a couple places the conversation went, but, but something that, uh, you know, you said last week was essentially that um, plans are useless, but planning is invaluable. And a question that I kind of wanted to ask last episode, but I didn't want to get too far into the weeds into, you know, war stories or, or anything like that. But do you, do plans ever go exactly the way you thought they were going to? Can you can you think of one instance ever of like made a plan and everything happens and afterwards you're like, wow, that went exactly the way I thought it was going to? 
Um, yeah, huh, that's a good question. Uh, and so it's the Rhinox Hops is very, very rare, almost unheard of. Uh, I, I did have a couple. Um, I did have a couple of a uh, couple of those uh, go down about uh, 10, 11, 10, 11 years ago. But frankly, yeah, I can't can't get much into them on the uh, sure. on the radio. Um, but it's I mean it's it's very it's, it's more of a black swan event, uh, you know, a one in a million event uh, when a plan does go perfectly according to plan. Now that being said, um, I'm also talking about like complex military operations involving. Uh, uh, you know, a ton of different variables and potentially dozens or thousands of people or, or whatever, right? Um, on the flip side, taking these principles that I've, I've learned and I try to teach folks and applying them to my, uh, apply them to my personal life and the civilian self-preservation context, um, I have had, you know, a number of occasions where things went exactly and precisely according to plan. Um, because you're basically reducing the variables, and it's like me and potentially, let's say, one other person, and then they do a thing, and I immediately bust out. You know, they, they give me a situation 43, and I immediately bust out a plan R, and it works to perfection, and then I continue walking and move on with my day. And that actually happens pretty frequently. Right, so, right. So I, and I should have asked the question last week, but it did occur to me that certain people, you know, you know when you tell someone something and you have a really solid idea of what you're wanting them to take away from it. And then you talk to them afterwards and they, they take the exact opposite away from it. And you're like, no, that's no, don't. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to, yeah, well, right. Uh, I kind of wanted to address that real quick and, and hence my asking. So we're not, we're not going to spend all episode talking about last week's episode because that would be lazy of me. And uh, and I can do better, darn it. So a question that uh, I would like to ask you is someone that, you know, this is this is not theoretical for you. You've spent, you know, the majority of your adult life uh, preparing for and planning for and participating in violent activities or potentially violent activities. One of the things that comes up a lot is this emphasis on gear and this micro sort of it's almost this really micromanaging like I'm going to look at this one specific thing and we're going to just fight to the death about it. And I was curious of your thoughts on your personal evolution of, you know, I, I know that you're very thoughtful about what you carry and why you carry it. And you've, you've gone to some great lengths to have very custom to you stuff, but does any of that actually matter or just, uh, or, or could you just be like, yeah, I got a hammer. I got, I got, uh, I got some pliers if I need it. And, and I'm, you know, speaking metaphorically, um, so good. You know yeah. what you know what I mean? Oh yeah. So so getting into getting into gear choices. Um, and you you I know that you were aware of this. Uh, almost anybody who who basically puts content on the internet uh, knows this well. Uh, Greg Elfritz, who's a, who's a great dude, uh, has, has mentioned this repeatedly. Where like he can 
he can write a 10,000 word article on like very nuanced stuff like what we're talking about, uh, you know, this episode and last episode. And, uh, you know, his, his website page will get, you know, 142 hits and clicks and reactions or whatever. But then if he's basically just like, Hey, which carry gun is best? Uh, it goes viral and, uh, you know, uh, half a million people see it and comment and hate clicks galore. People tend to get, when it comes to gear, people get real, real, real passionate. Um, and, but again, it is a, one, America, uh, you know, in, in speaking to, to Americans here, obviously there could be people elsewhere, but, but just speaking to American culture, Americans are very gadget-centric. Um, you know, for example, I don't want I don't want a uh, a lifestyle change that can make me healthier. I just want a pill that'll make me healthier. Uh, and then likewise, you know, I want the right I want the right ammo, or the right gun, or the right holster, or the right gear that'll make me uh, um, that will make me you know safer. And the reality of it is, I, and you're right, I do have you know, uh, for example, Borsight Solutions custom you know custom locks that I've like you know had you know, modified to fit my hand ideally because I, I do have a more refined palette, if you will, for like, you know, what I want my trigger like and how I want my grip to feel and so forth, just like you do. But on the flip side, um, that's, you know, on the spectrum of things that matter or on the spectrum of aspects of self-preservation that matter, that is way, way down there on the periphery of like, once you have good enough technical skills. Now, what does that look like? That might be a whole, whole different conversation that we could have that, that would be really interesting. I, I'd like to have that conversation after this, actually. That's, that's, yeah. We're going there. Awesome. So, so, yeah, so once you have, quote, unquote, good enough technical skill, uh, and then once you have um, good enough decision-making, use of force knowledge, ability to know, you know, wh what to do and when to do it, um, and then what, and you know, a reasonable level of fitness and empty handed skill and less lethal options. And you kind of like, you're looking at the full spectrum of concerns that you've got to address. And once you've addressed all those, then we can start arguing about, uh, you know, nine versus 40, uh, Glock versus Sig. Uh, I just saw a holster throw down the other day, white light, you know, everybody was screaming at each other about weapon lights versus handheld still are I actually just saw a huge kerfuffle about, Weapon lights like yesterday, and people uh. freak out about it. But the yeah, but the reality of it is, um, is that having a baseline level of technical skill, and a and a, and then a adequate ability to uh, recognize, interpret, and choose a course of action in the face of uh, a violent encounter are. 95% of your, your um, uh, equation, and then, you know, gear and, and you know, some other stuff, you know, is, is 5% or, or less. Uh, I think uh, John Hearn, who I know you've had on the show, has, has made a chart that's, that basically demonstrates that we we're talking about, which is, you know, enough technical skill, uh, enough decision-making skill. That's not even half the battle like G.I. Joe. That's 95 to 99% of the battle. And, like, gear, heck, you're super, super, super secondary. Yep. Um, yeah, let's talk about good enough. We have to go to break. Uh, we're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research. When we get back, we're going to probably make people mad, and I am looking forward to it. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. 
Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdnance.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat, makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977, a legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories as well as the EDC series of firearms, which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've ever actually really talked about this on the show or not. And if I have, it's been so long ago that I don't remember doing it. And that's the same thing. Uh, so let's, let's have a conversation about good enough. What is, what is the, you know, the things that if you're not able to do this, it's imperative that you work on it. And once you're able to do this, maybe it's time to focus our attention on a different aspect of everything. Um, so what what would you say, and I, I kind of have my own thought on the number one thing that people should be able to do before they can do anything else, but but how about you? What what do you think? Well, um, I, so in my, my first one is probably not one you have in mind. It's the, it's the kind of, well, of course, yeah, I mean, after that. But, I mean, number one is, is uh, before anything else, is safe gun handling. Yep, um, that was my number one. Okay, yeah. I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, and we, the, the, the nice thing is, is that we've gotten a, a real-world uh, practice and exercise of this the last year and change with the gazillion, I don't know, whatever the number is, brand-new gun owners that were like, oh, man, COVID's scary, riots, like things are getting dicey, I'm going to go buy a gun. And, of course, you know, everybody, I'm sure you and I both, you know, share the, like, hey, if you need training, you know, come, you know, hit me up. Um, the, yeah, number one is you've got to be able to uh, literally follow the steps of the owner's manual um, and four firearm safety rules in such a way that you're not going to hurt yourself or another innocent person. That's, that's step number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where um, – you know, if you can't do that, then you can't do anything else. And what's what's really wild too is that that, that we say, you know, we say, well, yeah, but of course, I mean, after that. But the, but you and I both know that you know we both uh, attend a number number of firearms classes and teach a number of firearms classes, and and we still see people who are uh, and they might have uh, a modicum of skill, but we'll still see them commit gun handling errors um, routinely. So, like they basically skip that step. Yeah. Like, man, this guy's this guy shooting really fast. He's shooting really accurately. And then I watch him go to reholster, run holster, handle his gun. And I'm like, whoa, man, that guy's dangerous from hanging. Well, and so I, I'd like to just pause the show for a second and point something out. And and I apologize because I I suspect this. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable, but this is for the listeners, right? Um, mm-hmm. You have quite a bit of time doing it for real. And if you were to, you know, put your your military CV up, uh, and and show every you know show it to everyone, right? It, uh-huh. And I know you would never, you know, use this sort of appeal to authority, but there are not many people that could hang with you as far as that goes. They they exist, but it's it's significant. Would you say that that is a fair statement? Um, so I, I consider myself a 
a solidly solid green beret. That being said, yes, in the in the spectrum of people in the world, I I have a uh, broad uh, broad and deep experience in these matters. Yeah. Okay. okay. So we have what anyone would consider uh, a a been there, done that guy. And your number one thing that you're talking about before anything else is gun handling and safety. I, I'm just I just wanted to point that out to anyone who might be listening, because you you know and I know the number of people that are like, well, you know, it's okay because big boy rule. You know you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, and, and what's what's interesting about that is is just a real brief aside. Uh, so Army Special Forces Green Berets, our one of our primary uh, one of our primary jobs is teaching and working with and partnering with our partner forces. You know, your Afghan forces, our, our Iraqi forces, and I am proud to say, regardless of their, you know all the everything going on in the news and everything else, uh, the the units that fared the best uh, when when ISIS rolled into northern Iraq. Uh, like took Mosul and everything. The units that were actually fighting and like fighting to the last man were were Iraqi special operations units trained by Green Berets. Uh, likewise, the best units in, in the Afghan military that are actually still out there doing some stuff uh, were trained by uh, Army Green Berets. That being said, wouldn't you spend a lot of time around like third world dirt farmers, basically, who are illiterate, you know, illiterate 18-year-olds and you're handing them a gun for the first time, yeah, you tend to be really, really big on safety because the, the, the biggest thing I want that guy to not be able to do is accidentally shoot me. Mm-hmm. I don't want him to intentionally shoot me either, but, like, yeah. So, see, so yeah, any, anybody you talk to specifically in Army Special Forces uh, should have a, a strong priority on, on weapon safety, specifically because, yeah, when, when you deal with, uh, you know, the language barrier and everything else and you're handing guns to 100 random Iraqi guys and training them up, safety becomes a pretty big deal. So, yeah, I mean, that's just anybody that big boy rules, like, that big boy rules something, take them out of context, don't quote it as a reason for sloppy gun handling, sloppy weapon safety. Uh, that's inexcusable. Safety, safety and gun handling are priority number one, always. Perfect. Just just wanted to put that out there. Um, yeah, and, and again, I apologize, but I, yeah, I, no I think that's an important thing to point out. Um, anyway, moving on. So, all right. Before, you know, so the number one thing, before you ever think about anything good you're going to do with a gun, think about what you could do wrong with it and try and mitigate those risks. Cool. Let's say we have accomplished that. Uh, mm-hmm. Next one. What, what's, you know, what's something massively important, like good enough, like we need to get to this level of proficiency or skill or important, like where, where do we go from there? In your opinion, okay. So, um, so we've got safe gun handling uh, out of the way, and even though this is not a technical skill, I would say that's also the point at which you educate yourself on use of force, knowing uh, when you, you know, can, must, should threaten or use lethal force. Yada yada. Right. Of course. Past that, uh, two um, two things. One of them I won't talk very long about. The other one will require a little bit more discussion. First. <laughs> Learn how to carry your gun. Uh, learn how to conceal your gun. Learn how to carry it with a, with a round in the chamber. Oh, I say, uh, let me put it this way, or how to store it in your home securely, one of the two. Uh, so, in other words, learn how to stage your gun, we'll say. 
right? Because I'm, I'm talking outside the home, but inside the home it would be staging your gun where it's secure, safe among unprying hands, but you can get to it. And then on the street I would just say, and the reason I say that, I'm not going to talk about that very long, is the number of people who either don't carry because you're not comfortable with it or, or don't carry uh, or carry an empty chamber, empty chamber carry, which I uh, is not a great idea. Okay, but enough of that. The first real thing you need to learn once you're just comfortable carrying a gun in a holster with a round in the chamber or in your quick access safe with a round in the chamber inside of a holster, uh, the first thing you need to learn is, and I'll, I'll state it broadly to a, apply to a broad uh, spectrum of, of context, you need to be able to rapidly access your firearm and put a rapid quality hit on target. All right, and there's some components to that. So. From let's just say you're out on the street and you're carrying a gun in a holster, that is, you need to be able to draw and put a significant hit on an opponent who's threatening you with lethal force very rapidly would be the first skill that you want to get good at so with a handgun. So draw the shot, we'll, yep. we'll say. So, yep. in, in, and we got about a minute left. Um, and so I'll ask the question and then we'll dive a little bit further. We'll get to your response after the break. Um, so when we talk about draw to shot, there's a time component and there's an accuracy component. So I would be curious as far as your thoughts on what the accuracy component should be. Um, and then I'd be curious your thoughts on the time component or if you think the time component uh, should be the first thing we think about or the accuracy component. So so cogitate on that for just a moment. Right now sure. we're talking with uh, Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at bigtechsordnance.com. This segment also brought to you by Big Tech's Ordnance. Big Tech's Ordnance is the best place for you to find all of your everyday carry needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the Candela from ModLite at the lowest price, or, you know, you want the new PL350 weapon-mounted light? Well, no problem. Spend too much time alone in your room, and now you need an optic on your carry gun? Big Tech's Ordnance has those, and they don't judge. Glock accessories, yes, fast, cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, Big Tech's Ordnance has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike, and you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTechsOrdnance.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So I, I kind of asked you two questions about this, the, the thing after safe handling, uh, use of force law stuff, the, the overarching theme of, you know, essentially don't mess up with the gun. And, and we're talking about draw to shot now. And, and as I said, there's an accuracy component to that and there's a speed component to that. How would you frame that as far as order of importance and what that actually looks like in a measurable sense? So, um, first off, I know you and I are on the same mind on this, but people tend to, to speak in terms of um, speed and accuracy as if they are opposite sides of a seesaw or a teeter-totter, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever you prefer. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, the, the, the evidence is legion that you can be fast and accurate. Now, that being said, if you can only be one or the other, um, if, if that were the case, which is not necessarily the case, but, but in terms of the first consideration, it's always going to be accuracy. Now, this isn't 
This isn't the trite, like basically excuse to be slow. That's not what I'm making here. But, but if you're really, really fast, but you can't get anatomically significant hits, then it really doesn't matter with a handgun. Um, or it may not matter, I should say. I mean, there, there's a certain number of psych, what we call psychological stops where, yeah, you pull out a gun really fast and start blazing away. Uh, and the dude just, even if you don't hit him, he's just going to turn and run because he doesn't want your wallet that badly. On the flip side, you just sent half a dozen rounds out into the public, and that's not acceptable. So uh, accuracy and making sure that your rounds go only where they're intended and making sure they're intended to go into an anatomically significant uh, space, uh, which in the case of, uh, you know, a human being, the, the two places where you can most reliably achieve a uh, physiological stop, in other words, it doesn't matter how much drugs this guy's on, it doesn't matter how much, uh, you know, how committed he is, it doesn't matter, you know, he's a Viking berserker, it doesn't matter. If you, put some, if you put, put rounds effectively into their ocular window, basically like, you know, if you basically putting rounds between a guy's eyes and into his nose uh, and shooting him in the center of the head, uh, then that's, that's one accuracy standard, although that's very hard to do, or generally a six to eight inches circle in somebody's torso. You know, Tom Gibbons breaks it down as like uh, from your sternal notch to your solar plexus and from, from nipple to nipple. Uh, other people say, you know, take, take the person's hand and put it over their chest, but, but that is your target zone. You're not trying to hit the person. You're trying to hit, uh, you know, the, a specific section of the person, which is an eight-inch circle, high center mass in the chest. Uh, and that's being able to do that under no time pressure is probably step one. Um, then, once you're able to do that, compressing the time in which you're able to do so, because frankly, if, you, if it takes you 15 seconds at three yards at, at conversational distance to get your gun out and get a hit on an eight-inch circle on a person, it probably won't matter because you won't be fast enough. So one of the things that uh, let, let me try and frame this, and, and I'm very curious to, to hear your answer. One of the things that comes up often is the idea that, okay, when we're on the square range, you can, yeah, all right, you can, you can hit that three by five, you know, ocular window, head box, what, whatever you want to call it. All day, every day, that's awesome. But in real world, you know, the only thing we're worried about is combat accuracy. Um, again, well, yeah, I know, I know. I, I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, again, I'm very lucky that I have someone that is not speaking uh, theoretically on some of these topics on the show right now. In your experience... Uh, getting into or not getting into as much detail or whatever as you would like. Um, is it possible for a human being under stress to make accurate, very accurate shots, especially at typical handgun distances, on small targets quickly? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um you know, so, so to to touch on you know the, the first the first you know, the, the preface or premise of your your question is yeah on a on a flat range on a stationary target you know hitting hitting the you know the three by five card or a two inch square or a three inch circle or whatever uh, you know at, at three yards five yards seven yards yeah you can do it but against a moving opponent under stress is it you know like there's there's a big difference between it's impossible and it's more difficult. Okay, 
is it more difficult, you know, on a resisting opponent who's moving and you're under stress and perhaps you just woke up and haven't had your coffee? Sure. Can it be done? Absolutely. So it's not, it's not a yes or no. It's a sliding scale of difficulty. Um, and certainly, you know, scoring, scoring headshots uh, in real life is going to be more difficult than on, than on a flat range under optimal conditions. That doesn't mean it's not achievable. It can absolutely be achieved. It gets achieved all the time. It gets achieved by just run-of-the-mill police officers in America. It gets, gets uh, achieved by, by you know, special operations soldiers overseas. Uh, I mean, Jack, Jack Wilson, the, the church security team member in White Settlement, Texas, uh, you know, scored a headshot on a moving target at 15 yards. Um, and so, yeah, it's a thing that can absolutely happen. Why do you think that is something that comes up? Like as far as an argument against it, and 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 then I'll 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 say why I'm asking this afterwards because it's one of my training priorities, and there's a reason why it is, and and we'll talk about that maybe, and then move on. Well, so like, and, and make no mistake, like I teach in addition to teaching citizen defense research, where we tend to our students tend to be uh, pretty good shooters typically. Uh, the, the, the students that we see in class, not always, but generally we, uh, overall compared to the gun owning public in general, tend to have pretty good students. But I also teach a great number of private lessons. And my private lessons, I actually have a much, <clears throat> a much, uh, uh, much higher concentration of novice shooters. And so for them, uh, starting out, getting them shooting at an eight-inch circle and high center, high center chest is where I start out. Um, but, but the reason that whenever I hear Whenever I hear people like strongly advocate against uh, against attempting you know headshots or shooting very small targets that kind of thing, uh, and to be 100% honest with you, I think some of the motivations for some of those people certainly not all, and I'm certainly not trying to paint with a broad brush here. I think some people argue against that kind of thing because they they can't do it, um, and they want to rationalize that they can't do it not because they just haven't acquired the requisite amount of technical skill, but because they, they're not bothering to try something that's going to be literally impossible, quote, unquote, in combat, if that makes sense. So I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the reason that, that people are susceptible to that line of argument is because they lack the confidence and they, they haven't demonstrated to themselves that it is possible. And so they listen to somebody who's an instructor who's, or, or just somebody who's more experienced than them say, yeah, I mean, you crash that on flat range, but in real life that's never going to work. And they're just like, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me because I do feel like I'm pretty far away from being able to score five-yard headshots reliably on a moving, fighting target. Um, I got it. Like, you know, and then I think that it's just a lack of confidence on the part of students, and I think on some of the instructors advocating against that. Some of them may have valid reasons, and I'm certainly, I don't have all the answers, but I think, you know, for some of them it might literally just be that. I think that there's lots of instructors, myself included, who a lot of times will say that something can't be done or should be done a certain way because of limitations in a shooter's ability that says more about that instructor's uh, uh, that more about that instructor's limitations as a shooter than, um, than necessarily the, the possibilities. Because I'll, I'll be the first to tell my students, I'm like, hey, I do it this way because, frankly, I'm not good enough to do it that way, whereas somebody like you or Gabe White or somebody else might be perfectly able to do X, Y, Z. But, you know, I think some instructors like to, um, you know, just be like, no, nah, it can't be done. Well, okay, maybe. Well, by that sex however there did it. So, yeah, that's my thoughts. All right. Uh, and the reason I bring it up is, you know, I'm a history nerd, and uh, Daryl Bulky has a presentation that he gives, which is uh, highly uh, – what is it? 
habits of highly successful gunfighters, something like that. But anyway, there's all this historical uh, record that indicates after somewhere between somebody's third or uh, somewhere between three and five handgun shootings, you see a lot of people start to put a heavy emphasis on being able to make headshots at speed. And that just strikes me as a clue, you know, so that that's why I bring it up. Uh, so we talked about like the accuracy component of the good enough. What do you think the time component looks like? Is there is there a a metric like an actual you know like a you probably want to get to at least this uh, and that is good enough. So I um, there's not a hard answer on this, mm-hmm. but I have some thoughts, and so. Uh, and this is certainly there's there's been other people out there that think think about this and and write about this and um, so generally speaking um, and let me and let me actually uh, before I even give a definitive answer also this is another example of something that's been discussed in training circles by by people I respect people I consider mentors people I consider better and more knowledgeable than me and we've debated about this like. You know, for example, one one second draw to first shot is it a thing? Is it a is it a thing we're striving for? Is it going to matter in real life? Blah 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 blah. And my my general position on it uh, is that like if you standing on the range under optimal conditions, you have two shooters. Both of them are waiting for the beef. They know their task. They're at five or seven yards or whatever, and they know their task. And at the beef, they're going to get out and put a hit on the target. Uh, and one shooter can do it in one second. Uh, you know, point nine seven. Uh, reliably every time consistently it's not a fluke and then the other guy can you know it takes him two seconds um, or 1.5 seconds you know he's substantially slower than the one second guy and then you take them both and put them in the same unexpected situation right where they're just like pushing their grocery cart out of Walmart to go to their car and they get ambushed by somebody who I don't know runs up and stabs them and like that's how they find out they get in a fight do I still think like, do I think both of them are going to be substantially slower than they were under optimal conditions? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely I do. Do I think the guy with the one-second draw to first shot is going to be faster in, in that circumstance than uh, in the exact same circumstance than the guy with the, like, the, the 1.5 or two-second two draw to first shot? Uh, in terms of tenths of seconds, yeah, I, I probably do. Uh, now, granted, I, I, I know some very strange people who disagree with me on that. Uh, but in generally, it's one of those things where, like, I don't necessarily think optimal range condition – uh, speed can be replicated in real-world situations where recognition plays a factor, uh, yeah, and a bunch of other, you know, there's a bunch of other contextual factors that don't exist on a flat range. However, uh, I do think that it's better to have it, have it and not need it, if you will, uh, and I think that it's better to be able to draw it. So that being said, um, I would, I tell every one of my uh, private lesson students that carries, that, that is intending on carrying a gun. I tell them that a bare minimum standard, you should work until you can get a draw to first shot at seven yards on an, on a, on an either a, a IPSC A zone or a, an IDPA minus zero, uh, you know, either so your native circle or the six by 11 and a half or whatever it is uh, square um, in uh, sub two seconds. All right, now that's me. And that's, that's something that I think is, is under good coaching uh, from from myself or any other confident pistol coach, getting somebody down to a draw to first shot sub two seconds, like two seconds or less, is very very achievable. Yeah, uh, I actually find that getting people down to one point five to one point seven 
is very, very achievable. And when I and, and this is something that I actually uh, I first heard it from from John Korea from Active Self Protection and his crew. Um, but it was uh, yeah, they, like they recommend. They, I think he calls it the National Concealed Carry Standard based on all the videos he's watched and and everything he's learned. Uh, but yeah, that for the average citizen, two seconds should be your target. Uh, and then if you carry a gun professionally, 1.5 seconds should be your goal. I would actually say if you carry a gun daily. Uh, you can and should make 1.5 seconds your goal, and I think that's easily achievable. Once you start getting down to like 1.2 to 1.3, that's when the gains start coming harder mm-hmm. for most people, particularly in the amount of time that the average person is going to invest. Um, that's kind of the big thing, right? Is that I, with, with relatively little time investment, I can get somebody to two seconds. With a little bit more, I can get them to 1.5. But if they want to go from 1.5 to 1, they're going to have to put in a lot of work. And most people aren't going to do that. So realistically, I tell people, like, get down to 2 as quick as you can and then start looking at other stuff. And then while looking at other stuff, like less lethal verbal skills and all this other stuff, that you know, the tactical stuff that you need to be working on. And I would actually say verbal skills should come before you can carry a gun. Not come before, but should be a high priority. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and then start working your down one, uh, way down to 1.5. Right, and and that, you know, as someone that has had, I, I think there is a time period where um, I was very consistently in the point nines, and I think the the quickest I've ever been is like low point eights. Um, right now, I'm I'm around like a one one, you know, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. and and the amount of consistent effort it takes to maintain that that sub one um i personally for me and my resources and all that it's just the the juice isn't worth the squeeze that's not to say that it couldn't be for someone else um you know just speaking of myself uh we went over on this segment so we're we're gonna get more into uh some other stuff in the last segment right now we're talking with chris seipert from citizens defense research you're listening to ballistic radio Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech Ordnance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdnance.com. So we're talking with Chris Seipert from Citizens Defense Research about good enough. Um, you know, in the last segment, you were you were saying one, you know, everybody should probably get to at least a two and uh, one, one five, one point five for a draw to first shot on an anatomically significant target would be an ideal goal. I, I agree with that 100%. Um, that I, we're on the same page as far as that goes. And I don't know if that's because we teach together, or if we've just arrived at the same conclusion from um, different directions. Either way, you know, we're at the same conclusion. Um, so after the draw to first shot, uh, what next? What, you know, okay, your technical proficiency is good enough in this area. What's What's the next... Uh, what's the next step or next thing? Well, so the and this is this is a this is kind of a hybrid of technical and and tactical, if you will, of decision making, uh, which is to say that. Uh, so the the simple answer is that you need to start working. Because generally speaking, unless you're getting really good central nervous system, you know, a single really good central nervous system hit right off the bat, generally speaking, um, for most 
average people who are going to be shooting high center mass, uh, they're going to need more than one shot. So the next, the next skill that you'd want would be um, accurate um, and rapid, uh, um, prudent follow-up shots. I like and, that. I like that. Yeah. Prudent. Yeah, and I, and I, I know where you're going to go with this, and I dig it. Yeah, um, yeah, prudent follow-up shots. I was going to say rapid, but because reality is, is that we we all like to shoot uh, like build drills, um, and you know I'm going to draw it. And for those of you that know, don't know, you know, seven yards, I'm going to draw and fire six rounds into the A zone as fast as I can. And like a sub two-second build drill is like considered the uh, you know kind of the gold standard of like a, a, a you know an elite shooter. And obviously there's guys that can do it faster than that. But yeah, if you can do it two seconds, you're really, really, really hot. The problem is that if you practice build drills as a um, like an automatic response, that's and frankly, I think that's how like you, you get the police shooting that you're watching on your local news, where when it when it goes to grand jury, the the the, the suspect took one one round in the uh, shoulder and then five rounds in the back. It's because the police officer basically got his gun out, suspect saw the gun coming and started to flinch and turn and flee. And the police officer was firing faster than he could think. And so as the uh, suspect presented his back, the cop was just, you know, shooting .2 splits into the guy's back and couldn't hit the brakes because he was basically going too fast to make that turn, if you will. And, uh, and so the value of like a build, and that's not to bash build drills. The value of a build drill is a build drill will reveal your, you know, like your recoil management and, you know, rapid follow-up strings and that kind of thing, right? And, and like you know, if, you're, if your grip and your recoil management is weak, it will expose it. That being said, when you're, when you're trying to build a habit of what you're going to do in a real shooting, um, we as citizens in the United States, now it's maybe a little different when you're in a combat environment, you know, if you're in nor northern France in World War II, then yeah, you're just shooting as fast as you can, right? But as, as Americans with a legal and ethical responsibility to, to not shoot people who don't need shot and stop shooting when, when we need to stop shooting and basically be able to hit the brakes because we're legally liable for every round we fire, um, practicing to shoot as fast as possible between rounds may not be a great idea because if it takes you three or four or five rounds to realize that he has dropped his gun or is throwing up his hands or is falling to the ground uh, and you're shooting people to the ground and then all of a sudden a surveillance or a cell phone video pops up, that may look really, really bad. So basically, I want to be able to make a conscious decision on each and every shot I fire. And, and so because we do a really good job, well, we do a pretty good job of teaching people when to start shooting. Like, what is lethal force? When, when, when must you use lethal force to protect your own life? When can you articulate that? I don't hear a whole lot of talk about when to stop shooting. Okay, so, so this is when I, when I say it's a blend of technical and tactical. Technical is, is you need to be able to uh, basically, and not, and not track your sights or track your dot, but basically be able to get your sights or your dot back on target quickly and then make a rapid decision on whether or not this person needs to be shot again. And you might have to make this decision, decisional loop, if you will, three or four or five or six or 12 times before he actually decides to lay down and stop fighting or run away or whatever he does um, that makes you stop shooting. And so um, what you've got to be able to do is, again, you've got to be able to manage recoil to where you can control the gun and get these sights back on target quickly. But you've got to be able to, as quickly as possible, determine whether or not he's getting another round. Um, my general rule of thumb 
is that if once I have decided, like, you know, if a person is walking up to me at a gas station, let's say, and produces a gun and begins to point it at me, and I, and I decide to go ahead and, like, you know, take a sidestep and pr produce my pistol even though I'm behind, but I think I get my gun out because I think I'm going to be faster than he is. And so I give him a round, and then I give him another round, and I give him another round. Um, now, granted, if he, if he throws his gun down and sticks his hands up while I'm shooting him high center mass or shooting him in the face, which is doubtful, then, yeah, I'll stop shooting. But generally speaking, my rule of thumb is that when they leave my sight picture, I stop shooting. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, when they leave my sight picture, it might be they're fleeing, it may be they're falling, or it may be that they're maneuvering on me to a better vantage point to, from which to shoot me. But in, in any of those, I'm going to stop shooting, reassess, and then decide whether or not they need another or I need to stop shooting. But all of this is a very convoluted way to say that the next thing after draw the first shot is going to be um, rapid, prudently placed follow-up shots. They need to be quick. They don't need to be so quick that you're shooting faster than you can decide. So if I were, to, I, I'd be curious. I know what I would assign a, like a metric to that too. Um, and I'd, mm -hmm. I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Um, and this is off the cuff, right? So, you know, maybe if I thought about it more, I'd say something different. But I would say that generally, if you are able to put shots where you want them to go, multiple shots, uh, let's say in point two five, like re repeatedly on the range with the goal uh, and the understanding that in force on force or real world incidents, I'm not going to try and do point two fives, but at least the ability is there that, that that's a good thing. And, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, and I, I hate to do this cause I'm not trying to make it about me, but I, you know, I can I can use me as an example because I'm pretty familiar with my own capabilities. I can pretty reliably, if I want to, start pulling point, you know, one fives, one sixes without uh, the brake. The, the wheels are not coming off if I do that. Um, but in every video of force on force that I have, if you're actually breaking down the, the space in between shots, I'm usually shooting like against oppose you know opponents with opposing wills uh contested blah blah blah. I'm usually somewhere between a point three and a point four would would you say that that's like kind of what we're going for there if we were to put like a time to it yeah so if um yeah a couple of things the the reason for shooting quicker than uh, for shooting quick splits, as we call them. Uh, I kind of look at it as, um, you know, when, when, uh, when batters uh, in, in baseball games, they go up to the on-deck circle and they swing a bat with that big weighted donut on it. Yeah. Um, and then, what, then, obviously, they take the donut off and they go up to that bat. The bat feels light as a feather. Likewise, um, when you can shoot fast, um, when you can shoot fast, shooting slower feels really slow. But that's actually a good thing because, I, again, I think it, it's, it allows you to make much better decisions if you're capable of shooting fast and then you intentionally and deliberately, like, and, and that takes, by the way, for what it's worth, for everybody listening here, the, the part that you said that was really important was force on force. Yeah. Because if you're, 
if you're not validating what exactly what we're talking about in force on force, if you're just like, well, I'm going to practice 0.16 splits, but I'll slow it down in, in real life, and you never do that, then I almost, and all you ever do is shoot build drills with 0.2 splits, then I almost guarantee you, then you're going to go out and, you know, you're going to shoot 0.2 splits on the day. Uh, and so, so force on force is a necessary component of all this to, to validate and, and say, hey, man, I was shooting too fast or I was shooting too slow. But what's really interesting is, is uh, and, and I want to say I've heard this from Daryl Balky, I've heard this from another number of sources, but LAPD SWAT uh, or LAPD Metro Division, which has SWAT and basically a bunch of other elite units, and it has a pretty good gunfighting record. Uh, from what I understand, uh, basically they – and I, and I – I'm paraphrasing here. It's either 0.4 or 0.5. I forget which. But they basically had a standard split time that is what they trained for, and it's literally, like, it's the standard um, because it's what they've been shown that, like, their experienced officers who are really, really good with the pistol and really good experienced decision makers, that it's about as fast as they can shoot and make decisions. And I, and I forget what, what the exact split time is, but it's somewhere in the point. It's either 0.4 or 0.5. Experientially for me, I think, I think about 0.4. Um, for me to, for me personally, and this is going to be different for everybody, right? You're going to have people like Jerry Mikulik who's shooting, I don't even know what splits, but uh, yeah, he's probably processing a little bit faster than I am. But generally speaking, for me, if I'm shooting 0.4-ish, I can make an individual decision on each shot. And if, and if somebody, basically, if, if something changes and I need to get my finger off the trigger, get my finger straight and lower the gun and issue commands or do whatever I've got to do next, I can do that. If I dip much below 0.4, that's where I'm just like, I'm going to send out one more round as my brain's yelling at me to stop. And that's me personally. Um, I did, but I've learned, again, learned that through force on force training. I've learned that through range training, you know, various things like, you know, uh, you know we were talking about John Murphy does a thing with lasers, you know, red light, green light. Uh, and so, yeah, ultimately having the shooting quickly as a test of your technical skill uh, and a test of your, your technical uh, fundamentals of controlling the gun under recoil is valid. Um, when it comes to decision-making, and, and if somebody doesn't have the time to train like you or I train, and, you, and, I, just, and I were just going to give you a simple goal, I'd be like, hey, man, go for 0 .5, 0 .5 half-second splits and just train to that. If you're just some random person who's going to go shoot once every three months uh, and never take any classes or anything, 0.5 seconds is probably good. Perfect. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, we're at the end of the show. I, I want to recap very briefly just to the, the TLDR version of the show, and then if you have any final thoughts, get them. Uh, so essentially, good enough, and maybe you should start focusing on other areas after you can do this. Uh, number one, uh, safe gun handling and use of force knowledge, where we kind of grouped all of that together. Uh, number two, uh, physio physiologically significant accuracy around 1.5 to two seconds from accessing the gun, uh, whether it's on your person or, or in a safe. And then, you know, somewhere between uh, accurate follow up shots in between, we'll say, 0.35 to 0.5, but 0.5 is probably good enough. Is, is that kind of what we came up with? Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I like it. And, and then from there, where do, where do people go? Uh, well, so the from there, 
like what, what I would encourage people to do is is look at, and I've put out a couple of videos on our on our Facebook page and stuff about this. Is that is that what I'm trying to avoid are people who are specialists at, at you know they've got a they've got a .95 draw to first shot and can shoot .15 splits, but they're terribly out of shape. They have no empty-handed skills. They have no less lethal tools on their person or knowledge how to use them, and they have no verbal skills, and they are really poor at recognizing pre-assault indicators and planning and that kind of thing. So what I encourage people to do is pursue, like work really hard until you can safely handle a gun, rapidly access and get good hits. Again, get prudent follow-up shots and know when to stop shooting. But then beyond that, Take a step back and look at your, yeah, your fitness, your empty-handed skills, your, your less lethal, your verbal skills being a big one, your verbal skills and your decision-making, and make sure that stuff is also approaching good enough, because I'd rather you be good enough in all those areas than elite in one and hot garbage in all the others, if that makes sense. No, it, um, it does. We want to take a holistic approach to personal protection is essentially what oh, yeah. you're saying. Yep. Perfect. Um, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. I uh, I very I always enjoy our conversations, whether it's on the show or privately. Uh, but but thank you again for being so thoughtful and knowledgeable about everything. Uh, I very much enjoy it. I hope the listeners do as well. If um, if you wanna if you wanna see more of Chris's stuff, uh, Citizens Defense Research Facebook page or citizensdefenseresearch.com. And uh, thanks, man. I re- really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Appreciate all the listeners. Thank you, guys. Yep. Make sure you check out our website, BallisticRadio.com. Like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And, hey, keep leaving those five-star review on iTunes if you think we've earned it. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week. All right, guys. It's our very first uh, PS addendum to an episode. We were, we were getting done with the show, and Chris said, oh, man, I wanted to, I wanted to say this one thing, and we we – you know, we get to talk and we forgot. Uh, but through the magic of recording technology, we're adding it onto this episode right now. So, Chris, what was what was your little addendum that you wanted to add? Yeah. So the one thing I do want to make clear before I get a bunch, you know, and I don't know, maybe maybe you know the hate clicks are good for good for social media traffic, but. The one thing I do want to say is that when I'm talking standards and good enough, I'm talking to the average gun-owning person who's listening to this show, right? If you already have a well under, you know, a, a, a sub 1.5, if you're already shooting sub, you know, if you're shooting 1.2 draw to first shot or sub one second draw to first shot, you frankly probably already have a really good plan. And then I would just ask you to encourage you to examine whether or not you're, you're neglecting other areas. But beyond that, yeah, for the, for the .95 draw to first shot shooter, I'm, I'm not talking to you. You've got a good plan. It works for you. Keep keep at it. Same thing with you know the guy shooting the split times. If you're already a, a high level shooter, uh, keep doing what you're doing, and then just make sure you're branching out and taking care of other stuff. But this is mostly for the people who have a three second draw to first shot time uh, and one second splits and don't know where to go and don't know what to shoot for. If that makes sense. Nope, that makes sense. And now we are actually done with the episode. So thanks again, Chris.